Hello, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode 14. Should have had this out on February the 3rd, 2020. A lot of big news this week. The biggest, of course, being that game, who's, which, uh, which has an official name, but I'm not sure if I can quite mention it. And so it's a bowl of super proportions. It's the 55th time they've played it. And the Kansas City Chiefs will play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's a football game. And I think that, that pretty much sums it up. I think that's pretty fair. But, uh, so, God forbid I get sued, or, or God forbid someone tries to sue me, there is my legal recourse right there in that clip. So I hope to save that. All right. So, only one game this week. Clearly, it's the end. This is it. Patrick Mahomes goes for a second ring in a row. Chiefs try to become the first team to repeat since the Patriots, ironically enough, of 2003 and 2004, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tom Brady trying to win his record seventh Super Bowl ring, and Buccaneers trying to win for the first time in 18 years. First time that there is going to be a game in a home stadium. Either team will get, any team will get a home game in the Super Bowl. Eh, you know pretty much all of it. And probably the, the biggest headline, I think, before this game is actually played, uh, I, I would probably say would be Jamarcus Robinson and Daniel Kilgore going on the COVID list. I know there's a lot of talk about uh, you know uh, media night in the Super Bowl and Super Bowl week, and I just realized I've said the words Super Bowl. So now, if, uh, if you want to come and sue me, NFL, go ahead, be, be my guest. Anyway, the Chiefs had two players placed on the COVID list because their barber tested positive for COVID. Good news is, apparently, I believe they have tested negative, and if they continue to test negative, then they will be eligible to play on Sunday. Now, the good news for the Chiefs is that those two guys are not, I mean, Kilgore maybe, Robinson, Robinson's still like their, what, their fourth receiver, maybe, fourth or fifth receiver. They'll, they should be fine without these guys anyway, but it's important, even after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl last year, it's a it's it's a, a nearly once in a lifetime opportunity to play in the Super Bowl, and uh, you know just to have the opportunity, just hope that you get these guys first off safe, that everybody is safe and can have the opportunity to play. Just a reminder to you at home, by the way, to stay safe. And uh, now I am going to give a, a quick prediction here. I'm. I'm sticking to the score just because my friend Mike Phillips, with whom I interned at SMY, I he, so Mike Phillips, my friend, asked me for a prediction, just a quick prediction, because I'd gone on his podcast before and I'd done NFL picks in the past year, so he did a joint. He did a bunch of his friends who were on the show. We all did like one or two sentences each and a score. So I came up with what was pretty much the first score that popped into my head. I'm taking the Chiefs to win, but I said Kansas City 34, Tampa Bay 24, which I think is fairly accurate. I Honestly, I, I'm kind of vacillating. I'm, I'm kind of wavering between, I don't know, what... What the I really think the score is going to be, but 34 and 24 was the first thing that came to mind. 
I'm taking the Chiefs, and I, I think th- it seems like a fairly good score because, look, clearly I have more faith in Patrick Mahomes than Tom Brady right now. Yeah, Tom Brady's the best quarterback of all time, and he continues to defy age. But Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL right now. And they talk about you know, the future GOAT. I I mean, we'll see. I don't know. It, it's always exciting to, to see records broken and to see greatness exceeded. But we'll see what happens. It's going to be, I mean, it's going to be pretty tough to top, to top Tom Brady. If you're Mahomes, you probably got to win. I, I would think for any quarterback to, to be better than Tom Brady, you got to win at least, four, at the very least, four Super Bowls. Uh, it, Mahomes, he's on a good pace. I think the Chiefs are the better team. I, I, it seems like Tampa might actually be the better defense after what they actually did with Aaron Rodgers, especially in the first half of that game last week. But, uh, look, I, I think Tampa's defense did enough against Rodgers to prove to me that this game is not going to be a blowout. I don't think it's going to be a re- I don't think it's really going to be a shootout either. 34 is kind of a shootout number for Kansas City, but 34-24, I don't think it's going to be... It'll be close. I think it'll be within two scores. I don't know if it's going to be a one-score game. I'd be more excited if it were a one-score game because you want a Super Bowl to go down to the wire no matter who's playing. And it doesn't even matter. You know, I mean, I mean, unless you're a team, unless you actually are a Kansas City or a Tampa Bay fan this year, in which case, I mean, look, you'd, you'd rather the, the game be put out of reach sooner so you don't get a heart attack. But the general fan wants a game to go down to the wire. That, that's why every other sport you want... You want a World Series to go seven games. You want an NBA Finals to go seven games. You want a Stanley Cup Final to go seven games. I'm going to go Chiefs 34, Buccaneers 24. I will say Patrick Mahomes is the MVP of the Super Bowl again. He will join the very elite club. Uh, I think he'll join the very elite club of players to win Super Bowl MVP twice. They're all quarterbacks, of course. Just to make sure here, it is, I'm pretty sure it's, just thinking in my head here. I know Tom Brady has won it four times. Joe Montana, three. Terry Bradshaw, twice. Bart Starr, twice. And Eli Manning, twice. Those five guys are all... There are three of those guys that are already in the Hall of Fame. Two more of those guys will undoubtedly go to the Hall of Fame. And Mahomes... Look, Mahomes has only played four years, but clearly he's on a pace to get to the Hall of Fame. Pretty much, if you win two Super Bowls as, as a starting quarterback, you're on you're on pace to go to the Hall of Fame. The only guy not to the only guy to uh, not to win the only retired quarterback who is who is eligible for the Hall of Fame already who has not gone in but also won two Super Bowls as start as a starting quarterback is Jim Plunkett, and it's stupid that he's not in already, especially if Ken Stabler is in. And now I, I, Ken Stabler might be a better might have been a better quarterback anyway because he had I think he had tougher opponents, especially when Pittsburgh was really good. But if you win two Super Bowls as a starting quarterback and you play long enough, I, you definitely should be in the Super Bowl. It should be, in, should be in the Super Bowl. Should be in the Hall of Fame. But that's beside the point. Patrick Mahomes is... Look, if he looks that good against Buffalo, even after I thought he would not be able to play, I, I watch, watching him get hit in that Cleveland game, and more, more importantly, watching him get up and just look dazed and confused and walking all and walking all over the place. I know he he ran back to the locker room, but I thought that was more just to keep just to keep morale and just him toughing it out. But 
if he is able to emerge from that and play that well against Buffalo, granted, I think Tampa Bay is a better defense than Buffalo, but play that well against Buffalo in the AFC Championship game, I think he will definitely, I think he'll play even better against Tampa. He'll probably play, probably play better against Tampa. And I think, I think Josh Allen was better this year than Tom Brady was. Granted, Josh Allen didn't have a great game. It didn't have a great game against Kansas City, but he kept them in it for a while. And I, I think Kansas City is the team to beat. I don't know how heavy a favorite they are. I don't know what the the line is. I don't know what the betting line is at this point. And I would not say it's it's clearly not. A, look, it's Tom Brady for God's sake. It's not. It's clearly not a Colts Jets or a, or a Giants Patriots Super Bowl forty two or a Patriots Rams Super Bowl thirty two level line. It's not. It would not be a huge upset. Clearly, especially with the way people continue to, to hype up Tom Brady and the way he exceeds age. Uh, I am, but it is. More than it is quite possible that uh, Tom Brady comes away with unbelievably his seventh Super Bowl after this Sunday. And, and you know, another thing, another thing that gets lost in all of this good for Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians has coached for so long. Re- just remember what he did with Indianapolis when uh, Chuck Pagano won Coach of the Year. And I think a lot of that had to do with j- just his j- just his mental and physical toughness going through cancer with that 2012 Colts team. But Bruce Arians was the interim head coach with the Colts in 2012 while Pagano was going through cancer treatment. And that team was really good. That team I mean, that team got, I think, I think won a playoff game and came, I think they were within two scores of the eventual champion Ravens in the divisional round in Baltimore. So and, and then what Arians did in Arizona and a team that, that probably should have been in the Super Bowl, I really thought was going to go to the Super Bowl with Carson Palmer in 2015 and Larry Fitzgerald. Bruce Arians, I mean, talk about a football lifer. And if, if, if you're a neutral fan and you really want to root for somebody in this game, I, I, Bruce Arians is the guy for whom you root. Bruce Arians is the guy who's waited forever. That, uh, talk about a, a head coach that, that head coach that is deserving of a Super Bowl. There are a few guys in the NFL who really have waited a long time. Think about Andy Reid last year. Think about how how long Andy Reid had to wait. Andy Reid took the Eagles to the Super Bowl once. He took them to five NFC Championship games. Five NFC Championship games in I believe ten years, something to that extent. He, he didn't win a, a, a championship with Philadelphia, but he is probably the greatest coach in the history of that franchise, and uh, and in a lot of ways, a very well-regarded franchise. Four NFL championships. Andy Reid stands out. Now, you think about Bruce Arians. That's a guy who does not get as much love as he should. Remember, he was in the broadcast booth, what, a year ago? Two years ago? At CBS? And the the return, and look, of course, a lot of the credit belongs to Tom Brady, but but Bruce Arians was able to, after after the beginning of the year, 
finally meld with Brady and, and, and finally find a good team mold. This team was, uh, this team stunned me, and I was surprised they were able to get to the Super Bowl. And I was surprised that they made the playoffs, frankly. A little bit, at least early on, after early on in the year. I'm still going with Kansas City, but I think it should be a very good game. I'm going to go with, I'm still going to go with Kansas City 34, Tampa Bay 24. I'll say Patrick Mahomes throws for three, he might throw for four. He might actually throw for four. I'll say three touchdowns because of the pressure coming off the edge, especially from Jason Pierre-Paul. Dominican Sue should bring some pressure as well. And Devin White. It's a very strong defense. But, again, Patrick Mahomes, it's the most explosive offense in the NFL, the defending world champions. Patrick Mahomes looks destined to own this league for a long time, and he's just getting started. I'm taking Kansas City, even in Tampa, uh, even with, what's it going to be? Probably, I think probably about 20,000 fans, maybe about, maybe about 15 to 20,000 fans. I know it's 25% capacity. And that's another thing. That's another cool thing that they are actually having, that they're actually having all those first responders come out. It's a shame that this is the one, it actually would be really cool to see, you know, a home team in the Super Bowl any other year. But it's still because you know, to get the place at full capacity, uh, but it, it should be a really fun game. And uh, hopefully we don't get another Seahawks-Broncos from a few years ago. Now, moving on, I am going to skip around this week. I don't really have a lot of NBA talk this week, but I will discuss the NHL, most notably the, again, mostly, yeah, pretty much just the Atlantic Division. Talk about the the Bruins and the Capitals in this past week. Tony D'Angelo, his situation with the Rangers, as well as the Devils putting so many players on a COVID protocol list. You know what? I'm going to get into some rare air for this podcast. I will discuss. I'm not going to to discuss college basketball in general, but because you know I local and I'm not a homer. But just because it means something to me, and that's the, and it's it's where I focused my attention the most for college basketball in the last week. It's going to be I'm going to be talking about Seton Hall men's basketball. In addition, uh, I'll wrap up the show. I'm going to talk a lot about the MLB this week. MLB starting its season on time, planning to start its season on time. I'll be talking about the allegations against Mickey Callaway, talking about a big deal made by the Cardinals for Nolan Arenado and a tribute to Dustin Pedroia, retiring after 14 seasons in Major League Baseball. So, starting off with the NHL here, Boston Bruins coming back from down 3 to nothing twice in the last week against the Washington Capitals. They only won the second time. They won the second game, which is even tougher considering Zdeno Chara, after signing a one-year deal with the Caps, scored against his old team in the second game. He scored the first goal of the game, Bruins, again, I don't know if the Bruins are as frightening as they were last year, little well, last year before the playoffs, let alone two years ago when they reached the Stanley Cup final because of the loss of Tory Krug in particular. And then I think the loss of Chara is, for me, I think at least makes a difference in the fan base and in the locker room. 
because he can still he can still play to some extent. He's obviously a very strong defensive defenseman, and he's over forty, well over forty. But the, I, I think the Bruins had a big big loss there. That being said, Capitals do fall to the Bruins. Capitals lose for the first time in regulation this season. So maybe there is something about the Bruins. And, and look, I don't know if it's the Bruins so much as it is. You get to face teams eight times. You have to face a team eight times in a single year. I don't remember the last time that's happened, if that's ever happened in the NHL. Well, excuse me, that I take it back. That probably has happened in the original 6 era, maybe even in the original 12 era. But it's been a long time. I doubt in my... I, I don't believe in my lifetime... I, don't, well, I want to say there was one year the Rangers and Devils might have actually played each other eight times. I, but it's very rare to play a team eight times in a year. This is not Major League Baseball where you're going to face a team 18 times in a year. It's not the NFL where you'll face a team twice, maybe three times when you get to the playoffs. It's Even the NBA, you don't face a team eight times in a year. You face them probably four times at the most, four or five times. No, this is such rarefied air, and it's awesome because it, it builds, if you're losing, it builds a frustration that just makes it that much sweeter in victory. And if you're winning, you can just keep piling on to your rival. So imagine if you're a, a Flames fan or an Oilers fan and just watching those teams go at each other eight times in a season, and if we're lucky, 15 times, including the postseason. It, it's very exciting. So I, I don't know if, but obviously it makes a difference when you have when you face a team that many times, you get more used to their tendencies. So I don't know if this is necessarily that the, the, the Bruins are great, or the Capitals are falling off a cliff after a great start, or it's just the Bruins have started to get used to the Capitals. But I'm really enjoying this season so far in the NHL, especially locally in this, I think it's the Mass Mutual Atlantic Division, because they needed the sponsor, of course. All right, some bigger news in local hockey. Tony D'Angelo, according to Rangers GM Jeff Gorton, has played his last game as a New York Ranger. Now, I've watched the, a lot of the first few games. D'Angelo was benched by head coach David Quinn, I believe, after the first game of the season. He Now, Frank, he's, looked, he's actually looked good many times in the offensive zone, but he has not looked good in his own zone, and he's taken bad penalties this year. I don't know if it has to do with him signing this contract last year because people talk about, you know, that thing of when you sign your contract and then you go downhill from there. It happened with, in the MLB, it happened with Chris Davis. And the Chris Davis, Orioles Chris Davis, not Oakland A's Chris Davis, Chris Davis with a C. And you get your money and subconsciously or not, you start to decrease, your game starts to decrease in quality. Now, D'Angelo had an outstanding year last year. He's from Sewell, New Jersey, which is really, it's really Philadelphia area Jersey. It's South Jersey, but he's very close to New York. He's grew up near Philly, probably within two hours, within a two hour drive, maybe an hour and a half. So, enjoyed playing here. 
But after a two-year, $9.6 million deal last year, uh, signed during the offseason, it's been a disappointment. He, he is done, and I don't know if you're a big hockey fan, but Tony D'Angelo has a history of bad and question, bad, questionable, controversial behavior. He, and pretty much the, the, the push, the, the, the end, pretty much the end of the straw, the, the final straw was him getting into an altercation with Ranger goaltender Alexander Georgiev after the Penguins beat the Rangers in overtime on Saturday at Madison Square Garden. I don't know what he said. I don't know what exactly happened. But D'Angelo, I would think, probably heckled Georgiev or, or, confront, or confronted him or something regarding the goal. And apparently some player broke it up. I've, I, I've heard that it's it might be Chris Kreider. I don't know. I'm actually going to get to that in a second. But D'Angelo has a history of bad behavior. Let me just kind of take you through this here. So... D'Angelo is a little, how do I put this here, political. Um, actually, he's quite political. That's one thing. Well, he's been involved uh, reportedly with, he's apparently been a supporter of QAnon. That's what I've heard. Um, I'm looking at this article from ESPN here and uh, Emily Kaplan. So Gorton, Jeff Gorton had a quote that said D'Angelo wasn't able to move on from being benched for the second and third games of the year after David Quinn saw D'Angelo commit an unsportsmanlike penalty in the opening of the season. There was, there was some sort of confrontation between D'Angelo and Georgiev Saturday night. That was it. Georgiev is fine. Fortunately, I believe he actually, yeah, he was the backup the, the other night. Rangers ended up beating Pittsburgh on Monday. So D'Angelo's on waivers. There is no team claimed him, so it looks like they're going to try to trade him. He's on the taxi squad, but he will not. He's he's not going to play. He, that would just be a volatile, and cancerous situation, figuratively speaking, of course. If if D'Angelo were to return to that locker room, he had he had a great last year, but. He said something to Georgiev, had it broken up by teammates. So here's the most important thing. The the, disi for, the disciplinary issues of D'Angelo. Suspended twice during his junior career in the Ontario Hockey League, including for violating the league's policy covering, quote, homophobic, racist, and sexist language, unquote, and abuse of officials. Also suspended with the Arizona Coyotes back in 2017 for three games due to physical abuse of officials. So he's a very controversial guy. He is, he has been um, very supportive, whether you agree or disagree with it, of the, our most recent uh, former president. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to really touch on that that much. I'm not, I'm not going to take on pol people's political opinions, but you know, there are people who are very strongly on the side of that man who are especially controversial. So, 
D'Angelo has said some things, including, as I take a look at this here, there's a, a an article from a fan side of the Rangers fan sided page. D'Angelo apparently questioned uh, what happened to COVID following the most re recent inauguration, that, that COVID apparently, that uh, Tony D'Angelo apparently may have thought COVID might have been a hoax. Uh, he's he's been a questionable guy. He's, he's used offensive slurs towards his teammates. Apparently, there was a rumor that he apparently was was harassing Keandre Miller, who of course has suffered enough. Keandre Miller, Rangers defenseman, who has played very well. I I, I just like to point that out. He's played very well. He actually saved a sure goal that kept the Rangers in the lead. Uh, actually, it might have been a tie game at that point, but that helped the Rangers defeat the Penguins on Monday night. He's played very well, and Keandre Miller is African-American, and he also uh, suffered early, earlier in this year. He was the victim of some offensive language while he was doing a live, I believe it was a Zoom interview, as he was being introduced, I think it was after he was drafted that he was introduced. He was doing a, a live Zoom interview, and there was a comment that was highly racially charged and offensive. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it, it wasn't it wasn't friendly. Let's go with that. So this guy has suffered enough. Now D'Angelo was a, re reportedly harassing him. Look, Tony D'Angelo has been, you know, his politics are one thing, you know, do, do with that what you will, he, he is, but the most important thing is here, just, just not a nice guy, I, just a, a controversial individual, and that's, it, it, uh, politics or not, it's, it is, a far wing of, you know, he, he's, he's extreme. I can just put it that way. And I don't, I, I don't question anybody's political affiliations, but not even part, the, the guy is just offensive. And it's unfortunate for the talent he has. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter regardless of how talented he is, but it's it's a waste of talent when you are unable to contain yourself when when you're unable to 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 be kind to your teammates at all at all times to be respectful of your teammates regardless of race and and you know what if you're the Rangers this is the best decision possible it, it's been a a well-run organization for a long time a lot of people criticize. James Dolan, the Rangers owner, specific more for, more so for his ownership of the Knicks, because Dolan actually does a good job with the Rangers. I'm getting to a point here. Dolan actually does a good job with the Rangers. He leaves a lot of the day-to-day -day operations to, well, starting in 2000, he left it mainly to Glenn Sather, who did an outstanding job with the organization. The Rangers made the playoffs many times, reached the conference finals three times in four years, reached the finals back in 2014, nearly won 
And then Glenn Sather retired and turned it over to Jeff Gorton, the general manager. Now John Davidson has taken over and returned to the Rangers and taken over as Glenn Sather, as the, the president of the team. And he's done a, he's done a fine job. It, it's been a well or, well-run organization, a familial organization. And it, when something like this comes up, it's a good thing to know that you know guys that can can rally around each other. If you're a Rangers fan, that's what you need. To, that's what you need to take from this. You need to, if you're even if you're a member of the Rangers, you need to realize that the guys on this team are going to try to rally rally around each other, and that this D'Angelo thing, as horrible as it is, might actually be a blessing in disguise and something that really ignites the Rangers because they had fallen three consecutive times to the Penguins, one of their biggest rivals, and they did not look good. They had only won, I believe, one, maybe two regulation games up to this point. They had won one game, I believe, a couple nights before up in Buffalo, but they did not look good. Granted, well, at times they did, but they just couldn't put the puck in the back of the net for, for as many chances as they created. And, you know, this is something that if you're a Ranger fan, this really hopes, you really hope this awakens the team. And it seems like it did from the one game they've played, a small sample size, from the one game they've played since that ended. Monday night, the Rangers, who had lost three heartbreaking games to the Pittsburgh Penguins in the three games they faced them this year, finally beat Pittsburgh by a score of 3-1. to one. So, let's recap this here. So, the Rangers have suffered at the hands of it, really the entire Eastern Conference, and, or at least that old Metropolitan Atlantic Division, that whole, really that whole Northeast Corridor, that Flyers, Devils, Islanders, Rangers, and then, you know, kind of Buffalo, and to, to an extent the Bruins maybe, Washington in particular, that team has really, those teams have really suffered at the hands of the Pittsburgh Penguins over the last 12 years, 13 years, primarily because of the skill of Sidney Crosby and the skill of Evgeny Malkin. And, uh, well, earlier on, perhaps uh, Chris Letang, well, Chris Letang now, and earlier on, perhaps Marc-Andre Fleury. But these have te- these are fan bases that have waited a long time for it. The Devils have at least won within this millennium, but the Islanders have not won in God knows how long since 1983. Rangers haven't won since 94. Flyers haven't won since 75. Washington finally got over the hump and, and broke through that ceiling back in 2018 to hoist the Stanley Cup. But these teams have, have suffered at the hands of the Pittsburgh Penguins so many times and it just gets to a frustration when you have to face that team. Sidney Crosby at many times has been a Ranger killer. And three times this year, the Penguins beat the Rangers in the most poss- in the most heartbreaking fashion possible. One game, they beat them in a shootout. Another game, Jake Gensel scored in the final minute of regulation, so the Rangers didn't even get a point. And then there was one game where Pittsburgh won in overtime, and of course, it was Sidney Crosby who put the dagger, who got the dagger into the Rangers' back, into their heart. So, Rangers finally got over the hump. It really means something to the fan base that they were finally able to do this. Now, most importantly here, 
Chris Kreider, who may have been one of the teammates who got in and broke up that fight between, or the altercation, I'm not going to say a fight, between D'Angelo and Georgiev, got the game-winning goal in the third period. Scored on the power play, a nice deflection. Artemi Panarin got an empty netter pretty much as time expired. And I, I've said this for maybe a couple of years. I don't know. I would have said maybe Mark Stahl, but then he, you know, th then you knew he was on his way out. They eventually traded him to the Red Wings. Chris Kreider is now the longest tenured Ranger, especially now that Henrik Lundqvist is gone. But you never name a goaltender captain. I, I think it's a. I think it might be a rule that you can't name a goaltender captain. I don't know why. I get. I guess because the goaltender is not on the ice every night. But Chris Kreider is is not only the the longest tenured Ranger at the moment. He's the longest tenured Ranger for Ranger forward since Mark Messier. First Ranger to play. First Ranger forward to play ten seasons since Mark Messier. Stunning to think. But he is, and even though his stats at times, you know, you think sometimes he's a little more, you know, his stats don't say as much as his play actually does. You think he's capable of more. But he has been one of the faces of this franchise at times, and along with Artemi Panarin, Mika Zibanejad, maybe Adam Fox and Keandre Miller are on their way there. He is one of the faces of the franchise now that Henrik Lundqvist has moved on. So, I think they need to get name this guy captain right away. He's been with the team 10 seasons. Again, longest tenured Ranger forward since, rest, since Messier. And he's good in the locker room. He's a guy who is fiery on every goal. I know you might think this about, you know, maybe Artemi Panarin should be the captain. But, you know, you have to remember, Rangers, a lot, in a lot of the last few years, have not had a captain. They've had alternates, but the, even the year they went to the Stanley Cup Final, they did, not have, they did not have a captain. They traded Ryan Callahan in the middle of the year, and they didn't name one. Later on, they named Ryan McDonough the captain. Guess what? Traded him. Had to. Because they were out of money. They were low on money. And I believe... Yeah, Ryan McDonough was the last captain the Rangers had. He's got to be gone at least two years, maybe three. And eventually you have to find some sort of lone leadership in that locker room. Somebody who will step up and take the captain's C and put it on his sweater. I think Chris Kreider's that guy. So we'll see how that develops. Moving on to my side of the Hudson. The New Jersey Devils postponed their games versus the Penguins and the Rangers after placing 10 players. 10 players on the COVID protocol list. I don't know how many of these guys actually have COVID or if any of them actually do, but it, it may be for precautionary reasons. I'm not sure. So there are 10 guys. I'll name a few of them here. Connor Carrick is there. doesn't have COVID, but he is there as a precaution, and so he can be there with his wife for the birth of their child. Sammy Vatanen, a one-time devil who has returned, and goaltender Aaron Dell are quarantining because they've just joined the team. They don't, they don't have it. This is precautionary. However, this all, those guys are all off the ice. Perhaps more importantly, in terms of actual ice time and actual impact on the ice, 
This list includes Mackenzie Blackwood, a starting goaltender who the Devils just inked to an extension. Travis Zajac, long-time Devil, I believe the longest-tenured ten active Devil. Kyle Palmieri, the Long Island native. I thought he was a Jersey native, but I guess I was wrong. Kyle Palmieri, the local boy, who has been a source of strength for this team in, uh, in a tough last couple of years. Michael, Lecle- Michael McLeod, the young star Pavel Zaka, and some others. So, I mean, we hope... I mentioned before that Flames and Oilers, you hope that you get to see these teams a lot. You get to see them 15 times. If we're lucky, we get to see two teams play each other 15 times. And, you know, you want to see the Devils back as soon as possible because it really makes for an exciting division. Even though I think the Devils and the Rangers have the two worst records in the division, it's a, it's a really, it's a frightening division. Now, moving on. Here to college basketball. I'll talk about Seton Hall this week. So, Seton Hall lost two very winnable games to Villanova. Now, to be fair, I make this argument a lot. I uh, Officiating was bad. But, but uh, frankly, Villanova just kept hitting shots. And a lot of, a lot of times that wasn't even the, the Seton Hall defense. Villanova was just just really hit their shots, especially from the outside. That's a lot of what happened last year. I remember calling Seton Hall's second game with Villanova at the Prudential Center. It was actually the last Seton Hall sporting event I actually I ever called for WSU. I did that. I I mentioned I did that one other the last dance high school baseball tournament game. I did one game with Brendan Balsamo later on, a couple months into the pandemic, but th- that was the last game I ever called for WSOU for, for men's basketball, and a lot of that was Villanova, a good fundamental team, but a lot of it was just them just knocking down shot after shot after shot from the outside. It was Sadiq Bay last year, and this year that role has been taken by Justin Moore in particular. It's been taken by a few guys. Colin Gillespie can hit from the outside, but he, he really likes those mid-range, mid-range jumpers. Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Jermaine Samuels are still frightening, but Seton Hall could not... It's not so much they couldn't defend the three as Villanova just kept hitting the shots. And with that, Seton Hall just kept committing, and at times, they overcommitted. You know, the double team leaves a guy open underneath, and I'm telling you, wide open. There were there were a few times where there were Wildcats wide open underneath, and you just got the easy layup. And I, I'd rather have Villanova take a contested three, a, a contested three with one guy up in his somebody on Villanova. Let's say Jermaine Samuels take a contested three with one guy in his face then just leave somebody completely open underneath. You know, the, the other thing was, Sandro really, who is he's still the best player on this team, but he... Look, I know a lot of people want him to be Miles Powell to some extent, just kind of a bigger Miles Powell. And yeah, he can shoot from the outside. It's great. Better defender than Miles Powell for sure. But... He had a lot of golden opportunities to just go to the basket. Villanova doesn't have a true center. I don't remember the last time they had a true center. And Mamu would not roll to the basket on Saturday. 
He just wouldn't. Just tra kept trying to shoot from the outside, kept trying to force shots. Two biggest stats in that game that kept that, that separated Seton Hall and Villanova were three-point shooting and turnovers. Seton Hall kept turning the ball over. Seton Hall could not hit from the outside. Villanova kept knocking down shots from the outside. And if they had just gone to the if Mamu goes to the basket more, I feel like that's gotta be an eight-point swing. It was an eight-point victory for Villanova. Now Seton Hall still has a lot of time left. They have another month before the Big East tournament. And apparently at this moment, I saw the Tuesday night that Joe Lenardi said they are part of the last four in. I am genuinely, I'm honestly a little surprised at that, that they are actually in the tournament at the moment. But that also shows how well they have played teams at times and, and the reputation of Kel, Kel, uh, Kevin Willard and, and the competition they've faced. Now, I am going to wrap up the show with some MLB discussion, but I'm going to take a quick break first here on Sports in the Waiting Room. Back here on Sports in the Waiting Room, we're going to wrap up the show here with some MLB discussion. It's a fairly thorough MLB discussion. Even though we are in the middle of winter, I am staring at the largest snow, probably the thickest snow I've seen in a long time, maybe, some, maybe ever, actually, throughout the Northeast. But... Fortunately, we are a month from spring training, probably less than a month from spring training. I'm not sure exactly. It's got to be three weeks. I don't know. I'm, at Fe I'm recording this on February 3rd. I'll, I'm re releasing this on February 3rd. I would think it has to be three weeks till spring training. I don't know. I'm not sure. But the point is, the MLB will start its season and start spring training, at least spring training games, on time after the Major League Baseball Players Association rejected the MLB's medically advised proposal to start spring training one month later than usual. So the MLB, based on uh, the advice of medical experts, wanted to push back the season by a month. The MLBPA rejected that, and at least for the moment, it looks like we're going to have a full season. Now, the vaccine is being brought out, so I can't imagine it's going to be as bad. Even with the, the new strains, I, you know, we've gotten closer to getting this vaccine that apparently can... I think there are some vaccines that actually can stop the, the strain, too. So the new strains is what the, I think it's the UK and South, South Africa. I think there are two new strains. But, you know, I can't imagine it's going to be as bad as last year was, specifically with the Marlins. And even then, somehow the Marlins got all their guys back. They got to the playoffs. Had, somehow, out of, all that, out of all of that, had their best season in 17 years. And, look, I think, they're, I think it's smart to be on the safer side. I think, it, I think the MLB is probably correct in, in wanting to push this back, try to get all their guys vaccinated first. But, you know, if you're the MLBPA, you probably figure we played last year for two months right in the middle of the pandemic. So uh, why not? We can we can do this. So I'm, I'm glad they're coming back on uh, some much more serious news. And that was clearly... Even, the, even with the Nolan Arenado thing, this was the biggest story of the week in Major League Baseball. The Angels have suspended pitching coach and their pitching coach, Mickey Calloway, former 
Mets manager, former Cleveland pitching coach, after he was accused of lewd behavior by five women in sports media, per a report by The Athletic released on Monday, I believe that was released Monday, February 1st. The allegations span five years, and Callaway's time with all three of the teams I mentioned before, and this includes sending unwanted shirtless pictures, he asked for nude photos, he apparently bribed one of the reporters, he he allegedly told this woman that, you know, that he would give them info and, and, and more of an interview, more info on the team if she got drinks with him, and, and apparently some lewd behavior. I won't go into any further specifics, but I think that's maybe not graphic, but that's that's disturbing enough. That's all you need to really hear in, uh, in terms of the allegations. Now, um, obviously, horrible, We it, it, you know, this comes right off the whole Jared Porter situation. Um, first off, but before we even get into just just the potential widespread uh, aspect of this, the fact that this could be a widespread problem within Major League Baseball, I actually just want to talk about the Callaway's response to this because it seemed... Not only did it see look, the most important thing is whether he actually did these things. And if he's accused by five women, you know, it, you're you're innocent until proven guilty. But if you're accused by five women, you think it's probably true. At least one of these things is probably true. But uh, but on another note, his response was strange. He, I I took one quote. I quoted one sentence out of this. It was. The quote was, I look forward to an opportunity to provide more specific responses. First off, I don't know why you look forward to an opportunity to defend yourself from, I don't know, it was a very, very strange, it was a very strange response. I'm going to find this whole thing, actually. It was, okay, so I found the quote here from the article. Uh, the, the quote made by Mickey Calloway in response. So the quote was, Rather than rush to respond to these general allegations of which I have been made aware, I look forward to an opportunity to provide more specific responses. Any relationship in which I was engaged has been consensual and my conduct was in no way intended to be disrespectful to any women involved. I am married and my wife has been made, of these gen- made aware of these general allegations. So... First off, it was a very. I think it's very strange that he, instead of starting the allegation with "Look, I didn't do this," he, he starting starting the excuse me starting the response with "Look, I didn't do this. I de- I deny this completely." He just says, "I look forward to an opportunity to provide more specific responses." That sounds very generic, very white bread, and very creepy when you consider the context. And then the fact that he, I think the fact that he left, the thing about his wife, I didn't even realize he was married. The thing that he left about his wife being at the end there, I think it's just a very strange response. And if you're accused by five women, then I would have to think that you are guilty of something, at least. So, 
I don't know. It, it's this is disappointing to see things like this. It's the second time in two weeks that not just a member of Major League Baseball, but a former member of the Mets organization has been accused. Now, look, I, I've i gone on record as saying I think Sandy Alderson has done a fine job with this organization, and I can't... I'm not going to say... No one can tell definitively, definitively whether he knew anything about this. Uh, uh, but... There has to be uh, there has to be some sort of question of, of credibility, as, I suppose, as to the you know w- whether the Mets really did their their homework on these guys. And I'd like to think if these women had come forward before, or there were real rumblings about this, that the Mets would not have made the hire, that other teams would not have made the hire. But I don't know that for sure. Uh, Alderson gave plausible deniability after he fired Porter, and I'll give them a ton of credit. They got rid of him quickly, like very like within hours of this information coming out about uh, Porter. And the Angels did the right thing; they suspended Callaway. Probably should have fired him, but I I understand why they would at least wait until they can confirm these allegations uh, in order to fire him, but I, there really is a question, really more so in all society, and we saw this this with the Me Too movement, but you, you have to wonder now, as this sort of thing surfaces and really resurfaces, just how widespread a problem this is just within Major League Baseball. I'm not just going to narrow it down to the Mets organization because, one, we don't know if, if the Mets are really responsible for anything behind this, I or, or not responsible uh, in, in covering any of this up, but because, you know, it, it's also that Callaway, apparently this happened in Cleveland, and I, I believe it happened with, Anaheim as well. I think they go by the Los Angeles Angels again. But this happened with the Angels as well. So this is a, a, a you know a history of a history of allegations against Callaway, and I'm just hoping. And now look, this is just me being idealistic and and perhaps ignorant or naive, but I really hope this is not a, that widespread a problem within Major League Baseball. And it really shows you how you know we haven't come that far when it comes to uh, women in the booth, women in the booth, women in clubhouses, women in locker rooms. Uh, we talk about a you know limited opportunities. We've seen a lot of opportunities for women in sports writing, particularly. If you look at sideline reporters nowadays, you might actually think of a sideline reporter more likely as being a woman than being a man. You don't really see that a lot in terms of the play-by-play booth. You're starting to see it more in terms of color commentary, um, especially and I don't know. In terms of the play-by-play booth, you think of the, the one person who really stands out is probably Beth Mowens, the one person who we really recognize, and, and you just have to wonder if how much this has to do with it and 
I, I mean, how widespread, how rampant a problem is this, really? The MLB is probably, if this happens within the organization a couple of times, with if this is such so serious, the MLB is going to have to institute some sort of system, some sort of background check, some sort of something, when it comes to hiring these guys. Because it's coming to a point where it's it's not safe to be in a locker room or in a clubhouse if you're a woman. Of course, I look. I I don't say this from experience. I say this from the experience of you know I work in sports media. I've worked in uh, locker rooms before, but I but I, I say this as a as a man. I I'm, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to be honest and trying to get this out into the open here because this is something that if, if women are coming out about this now it might not go away immediately we've we and this kind of dates back really to remember 2000 was it 2019 Brandon Taubman the assistant GM of the Astros that whole situation the guy who said with women present in the locker room I'm so happy we got Osuna which didn't make any sense because Roberto Osuna, who was who was suspended for allegedly beating his wife, uh, blew the save earlier in the game. It was pointless to save. It was just just horrible actions from these people. And I I don't know if Major League Baseball is really become is you know is it that much still of a in a bad way, a quote-unquote boys club. How serious an issue is this? This needs to be, it's something that needs to be addressed. I, I don't think there's been enough, I, I don't think there's been enough discussion about this. And, you know, is that why we don't see as many, as many women in sports media? Does that have to do with it? Do, do, do some women feel threatened by guys like this? And I, I don't know. I hope that look. I hope that these things don't happen that often. But God forbid they do. I'm glad that people are actually coming out and talking about it now because maybe it will lead to more opportunities for for women. One to uh, to to make it to major league clubhouses and locker rooms and and, and broadcasting booths. But but more importantly, to feel safe there. This is not just Mickey Calloway. Mickey Calloway could be a creep. But, unfortunately, he's not the only one. Jared Porter, we know for sure. Are there other guys? Are there other guys who do this? I'm an idealist. I try. I hope that there, there, there aren't, but it's very possible that there are. Unfortunately, these things happen, and we just need, we just need to point that out. In, in Major League Baseball in particular. So, I, I'm, I don't know... It, you know, it's funny. I look at my. Sometimes I look at my. Um, I look at the Anchor app, and I uh, Anchor helps. Anchor is what I use to to make this podcast, and I'll look at my just statistics, my listenership. Last I saw, I've looked, and I don't think I've actually had any. I it's, you know, I I don't think I've actually had any. I, I believe I actually have one hundred percent male viewership. And I know I don't have a lot of 
listeners. I understand that. It's gone down. Frankly, it's gone down pretty significantly from the first episode. I know I'm just here. I'm talking just so I can talk, so I can get myself out there, so I can... And frankly, most of my listeners are probably my friends. But... And, and, pro- and apparently, mostly, if not entirely, male friends. But I'm just trying to encourage you, please go out and... If something like this happens to you, it can happen to men too. If something like this happens to you, please be willing to talk about it. Uh, and just because, you know, it, it may be embarrassing, but because it'll be better for the next person. Hopefully it'll be better for the next person. That that's that, that's all I can tell you. I, I I hope I'm speaking in the right here. I hope I'm not overstepping, but it's just a point that needs to be made within within baseball within just everything now. You now uh, we'll finish off the show with a couple of lighter things. Uh, big news within Major League Baseball. Uh, two pieces of big news. One probably bigger than the other. The bigger piece of news is probably. At the St. Louis Cardinals have acquired Nolan Arenado, the what maybe the second best Rocky of all time behind behind Todd Helton, and and he quickly becoming one of the greatest third basemen ever. They acquired Nolan Arenado from the Rockies and fifty million dollars in exchange for five prospects: left-handed pitcher Austin, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, Gomber, who is was expected to compete for a spot in the rotation in St. Louis. And Lord knows if the Rockies have needed anything over the years, it's pitching. Because they've had hitters. They've had hitters for their entire history. It's the pitching that really has to put you over the top. That, that, that's what they really lacked, even, even when they won the pennant in 2007. That, that's kind of what they lacked. Uh, the Cardinals also give away their number eight prospect in their system. The infielder, Alejuris Montero, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Infielder, their 22nd pro- best prospect, Mateo Gill, another infielder. Right-handed pitcher Tony Losey, ranked 19th in their system, and Jake Summers. Now, I, I I think it's a big one for St. Louis. One because they get Arenado, and two, of course, because they're actually the Rockies are actually paying that much out of his contract. Uh, this really should keep them the favorite in the National League Central after winning last year, especially since the Cubs have kind of broken down a little bit. The you know they uh, with with Darvish and, and all that the Brewers have kind of broken down, uh, not uh, they kind of broken down the team a little bit in the last couple of years. They they didn't succeed uh, last year. You know they didn't play to the level that they had when they arguably should have been in the World Series in 2018. St. Louis is back to being the front runner and the the team to beat in the National League Central. Because that is a team that made big strides in the last couple of years. And now that they're going to have maybe the best third baseman in baseball. I don't know. Manny Machado's probably up there too. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. I've also been a little desensitized to baseball now that we're now that we're in the middle of winter. But uh, Nolan Arenado is going to make that team a World Series contender. Because they were they were a playoff contender already, but you put that guy in the middle of the lineup, and they are frightening. So St. Louis, St. Louis, and I, I think it was a good deal too, because they gave up five prospects, but they were all outside the top five, and, and they get fifty million. I think it's a big win for for St. Louis. 
Rockies, look, you hope that these guys are, are good prospects, or, or you can you can trade them for I don't know, or you can trade them for for better prospects, and it's just a time for them to develop. It's it's unfortunate for for Rocky fans, but Nolan Arenado, it's not his fault, but but wasn't able to deliver a championship in his time in Denver. But he will be, if and when he goes to the Hall of Fame, he should go in in a Rockies uniform. So I, if you look at it, he's one of, I believe, last I saw, I think he's actually one of the top five fielding third basemen ever, which is insane. I don't know if I'd put him to the level of Mike Schmidt, let alone Brooks Robinson, two guys not in that order. I think the top two third basemen of all time. But Nolan Arenado is one of the more underrated and one of the best players in baseball. And Colorado, great, great town, good baseball town. Uh, excuse me, Denver, good baseball town. Colorado, good baseball state. But besides maybe New York, Boston, maybe L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, I don't know. St. Louis is among the best baseball cities in America, and perhaps the best because you know Yankees have the most are the most successful team in the history of professional sports, but the Cardinals have the second most titles, and though there's a big disparity, they compete every year. Every year they're competing for a playoff spot. And and that is a team that is hungry for yet another winner. They, they continue to be hungry. And St. Louis is going to be the, the toast of the National League, I, I think, within the next couple of years, once again. So that that's a huge deal. And to wrap up the show here, last thing, Dustin Pedroia, second baseman for the Boston Red Sox for his entire career, retires after 14 seasons. He was pretty banged up in the last couple of years, missed a lot of time. It wasn't a big part of that last championship team in 2018. But he retires after 14 years with the Red Sox. I, I really could not say it enough. He really is the epitome of the, the, the Boston working class and uh, j- just a really hard-nosed player, uh, a real almost Charlie Hustle type, great, uh, good power hitter, got a little bit of power, good pure hitter, great infielder, had a lot of speed, uh, just, a, just a great ball player. 2007 American League Rookie of the Year, four-time Gold Glove winner, four-time American League All-Star. A lot of people might forget, 2008 American League Most Valuable Player Award, Three-time World Series champion. He actually, I think he led off Game 2 of the 2007 World Series as a rookie with a home run as the Red Sox swept the Rockies in 2007. They beat the Cardinals in 2013. First time they won the World Series at Fenway Park in 95 years and then beat the Dodgers in 2018. Ian Kinsler was really the second baseman at that point because of because of Pedroia's injuries. Uh, so d- despite injuries ending his career early, look, Dustin Pedroia is not going to go to the Hall of Fame. He he might get on. Uh, he probably should get on the ballot, I would think, and and, and you know maybe maybe get past the first year with more than five percent. But uh, a great ball player, one of the great ball players in the history of, of one of the best franchises in in all of Major League Baseball, let alone sports. And really, he should have his number fifteen retired by the Red Sox. I am making a, a call for that right now. But, uh, you know, Dustin Pedroia missed a few years, missed some time, but that also just shows how hard-nosed a player he was and how tough a player he was, and uh, the best of him in retirement. So that'll do it for this show this week. Enjoy the Super Bowl, 
you know, stay home, stay safe, but try to enjoy it uh, with, with each other, even from afar. So thank you very much, and I'll talk to you next week.